Get back in control with Off the Wagon, adventures in emotional eating, health, and weight loss. Each episode containing fork-sized mindset tweaks, perspective shifts, and lifestyle hacks to get you back on the wagon. Whether it's habit change, emotional eating, addictions, weight loss, willpower, or relationships, there's something here for you. So let's get on the wagon and get down the road to your goals with me, Christy R. Hall. Welcome to episode 15, where this week we're continuing our discussion of how to manage our emotions. If you recall, we talked about how feeling these intense emotions like fear and anger and even sadness, frustration, or anxiety can trip off a portion of our brain which turns off executive function, which prevents us from behaving with intention, which often leads us to making less than the best or other than we intended food choices for ourselves. Last week, we talked about how to, in effect, pop out of our emotions by being self-reflective. We don't want to try to avoid emotions, but instead avoid the impulsive reactions we have to our emotions. We begin to do that by acknowledging our emotions and our experience. That gets us back in control of our minds. And from there, we can make the attempt to see the situation or event more clearly and see if we can put it in the proper perspective. Last week, I suggested that at the end of your morning shower that you take a moment, maybe 30 seconds or so, and turn the water on cold. Now, I don't know how many of you actually did that, but the idea was not to torture you or give yourself a heart attack, but rather it was designed to have you acknowledge your thoughts and feelings about a situation and still control your behavior. This is the exact strength or power or even skill that we want to build for use in our emotional lives because things happen. People say things, it sucks, it hurts, we cry, we feel bad, but we can still control our behavior. We can still learn to control our responses. If our goal is to learn how to control our responses, you might think then that sitting down and trying to determine all the possible outcomes to an event or situation might be a good thing. And in some cases, it actually can be beneficial. Keep in mind that a lot of people do this and it can create its own form of stress and anxiety as they try to plan for every possible outcome. But when it's most successfully practiced, this type of advanced thinking and planning leads to confidence and may help alleviate future worries. Always understanding that there are lots of situations where we don't know what to do, we won't know how to respond, and let's face it, the outcome isn't even on the map of things that we were expecting. As an example, you may be worrying about an upcoming holiday with your family because you're certain that there will be yet another discussion about foods and dieting. Your mother may detail off to you who all has gained weight and who has lost weight using which dieting methods. And it's always a very emotionally charged conversation that leaves you feeling inadequate and like a food failure. So you mentally practice what you will say. 
This reinforces your resolve to stick to your eating plan. You repeat the words and phrases she uses, knowing what you'll say to each one. Staying calm, cool, collected, and in control. This sort of mental practice is helpful and beneficial. Having a plan for how you may deal with this sort of high-intensity emotion is a great idea, no matter where you are or what's going on. It's also a great way to train your brain and program in the behavior you want to have as an alternative to the behaviors you typically do have. So let's say you're habitually acting out emotions or running away from them. Identify what it is that you're doing that gets you into trouble or that you'd rather not be doing. And in those moments, figure out what you would rather do. And so you identify in advance, I'm going to try this other thing first. And this is where you could make a list of things that you're interested in trying. And I've talked about making a list before in other episodes. If you haven't started working on your list of alternatives to emotional eating, now might be a great time to start working on that. So the next piece I want to talk about, I actually touched on a bit in part one. And that's about thoughts. The point I want you to understand here is that the way we perceive an event makes a difference in how we respond to that event and the meaning we make from it. So you may remember me saying that anger and empathy were kind of incompatible in some ways and that they usually couldn't occupy the same brain and heart space at the same time. The next time you find yourself cut off in traffic, see if you can ask yourself, what is my part in this situation? Could you have maybe missed checking your mirrors? Could you have been speeding or going too slow? The next time your boss is tacky to you, ask yourself, is there something going on in her world that has nothing at all to do with me? Maybe she's hung over. Maybe she fought with her husband. Maybe her kid ran away. No, that's never an excuse to treat someone poorly, but we're all human and we all have had bad days. And even when we don't have bad days, We make things mean things about us that they don't. And I want to quickly share this story with you just to illustrate what I mean. Mine and my father's relationship has always been questionable for me. I never felt like I knew where I stood. And I always felt like I was doing things to try and win his love and ultimately failing. When he went into the hospital for a procedure, I was there. I made sure that I was there for the testing. I was there for the procedure. I brought him ice chips. When everyone else went home for the evening, I stayed. When he finally came out of the procedure, I was the first person to see him. When I walked into the room, I expected for him to be beaming with love because his daughter cared so much for his well-being. Instead, he asked me, where's my wife? In that moment, I felt like I didn't exist. The hours I'd spent there at the hospital didn't matter. The tears, the worry, all wasted. He didn't care. I could have not been there at all, and he wouldn't have noticed. 
At least that's how I felt at the time. And I hate to say it, but it took me years to circle back around to that painful memory and make peace with it. But I did make peace with it. And I did it by putting myself in his shoes. That is, I went back to the memory. I made it as real as I possibly could in my mind. And then I put myself in the hospital bed as if I was him. I tried to see the world through his eyes. Feel what he was feeling. I played the memory again, except this time I imagined that I was my father, just out of this hospital procedure. And I saw my daughter come into my room, and I had the same thought. Where's my wife? But from this vantage, this perspective, I could see that his question wasn't a rejection of me, his daughter but came from his own feelings. There he was in the hospital having this procedure. And when she, his wife, could be there with him, where was she? With that in mind, I thought about it again. Had I been in the hospital and my family there, it likely wouldn't be my brother or my sister-in-law that I'd want to see first. No offense to them, I'd want to see my husband. And that's likely what my dad felt. And it likely had nothing to do with my importance and significance to him. I made the meaning. And that's how we do it. Going through life, interpreting other people's actions and reactions and their words and making them mean something about us, either good or bad. And that's why this point of view technique is so very useful. Sometimes just seeing a situation from another person's perspective is enough to make all the negative emotions around the event or situation dissipate. In almost any situation you're in, whether you're sad or wronged or hurt by someone or something somebody else has done, you can almost always ask yourself a series of questions to help you gain some perspective on it. Some of the questions that you might ask yourself include, why do I think this person would do this? Why would a decent and reasonable person do this? And what extenuating circumstances would make it okay for me to do the same thing? Finally, I want to touch very briefly on facts versus beliefs. This idea is centered on the concept that we generally accept our beliefs as facts, but they're not. We believe our boss hates us, or that our spouse is falling out of love with us, or that we cannot control ourselves around food, but there are no actual scientific facts to support these beliefs. Instead, we have made meaning about things and base our beliefs on those meanings. We believe that because our spouse hasn't brought us flowers in a long time, that they must no longer love us. We believe that because our boss asks us to redo a report or seems short with us, that they must hate us. We believe that we believe that because we habitually give in to urges and cravings, that we must be powerless around food. 
But the truth is that our spouse is just as tired and busy as we are, and they likely still love us just as much as we love them. And our boss is short with us because she's busy and wrapped up in her own life. And her boss actually asked her to redo the report, and so that means that you have to redo it. And it has nothing to do with you personally. And we give in to food because we don't hold ourselves accountable. And other than trying to willpower and white-knuckle it through, we've not really tried much else when it comes to resisting food. Always remember that attitude is everything. And how you think about it will be your success or your downfall. If you think about resisting food as being deprived and neglectful and how terrible and bad and horrible for you it is, that you're, you're likely to give in. If you think of those food choices, staying away from certain kinds of foods as a choice that you're making for yourself, for the betterment of yourself, you strengthen your resolve and it's less difficult. You have less resistance. So we may not always know the facts behind an event or a situation, but it helps to realize, think, and even believe that everyone else in the world is doing the best that they can at any given moment with the information that they have at their disposal. Just like each and every one of us, if they knew then what they know now, they might have done things differently. But we're all doing the very best that we can. So wrapping this up, managing our emotions begins with us stopping, identifying, recognizing, and acknowledging our emotions, acknowledging our experience, and then attempting to talk to ourselves like we're another person, as if we are someone observing us, right, to get us out of it. And then if we find that we're still stuck in it or if we are still holding on to the negative feelings about a situation or event, try to see if we can look at it from the other person's point of view or perspective. These exercises that I've outlined in part one and part two are really about developing compassion for yourself and for others. It's about touching in with yourself, taking an inventory of your emotional experience, and ultimately decreasing the potential for impulsive emotional eating behavior and creating a space where you are in control and can decide what are your options and what are you going to do. So I want to thank you for tuning in. I hope this has been helpful or at least entertaining. It's not all easy stuff to do. I get it. And it takes practice and effort, but it can be done and it is worth it. So with that, I want to thank you for listening in today. And if you have any questions at all, feel free to reach out to me on Facebook, fb.me forward slash coach Christy R. Hall or on my website, www.christyrhall.com. See you next time. Bye-bye.